0: Thank you, June Pat. We have had Joshua's walls. We have had Ruth's radical redemption. We have witnessed Esther's timing. We have encountered that famous haircut in the story of Samson. We have faced our giants as we shared the story of David and Goliath, and we have encountered talking donkeys, not just in the film Shrek, but in the story of Balaam. And today we're talking boats, we're talking rain, we haven't seen much of that recently, let's hope it continues, and we're talking rainbows. So here we are once again having a look at some of the Bible's colourful characters. And what we're hoping to do, as we have with each of the other characters in this series, is simply to give an overview, to paint an overall impression of someone's life. And to ask us, what does that story and that person's life mean for us as we try to live out our faith in our own individual families, situations, and circumstances? But the hope is that once you've heard the story, that you'll then go home and maybe engage with the story on a deeper level for yourself and continue to ask yourself the two questions that we've been asking all the way through this series – What in this story did I hear that was new this time? And what in the story makes me want to live my life differently? So there was a righteous man and an angry God. And God was angry because humankind had gone their own way. And God decided that the only way to fix it was to wipe it out and start all over again. Q. worldwide flood. There's no safe place to go, to hide. Everything is going to be wiped out. But at the same time, as the flood is being planned, the God finds a righteous man and says to him, I need you to build an ark. I need you to build a big boat. You're to put all the animals on it. And in exchange for following my instructions, I'll protect you, and you'll be safe, and you won't be wiped out. So the God gave the man very specific instructions. The boat is to be 120 cubits high, 120 cubits wide, and 120 cubits deep. God is asking this man to build a massive cube to keep people safe. This was going to be one funny-looking boat. So the righteous man agrees, because at the end of the day, who's really going to argue with a god? So the righteous man goes on ahead, and he finds his builder friends. And when he's finished building this massive cube, the storm clouds gather. So the people say, let's gather all kinds of animals, All kinds of gold and silver, get a crew and get our friends and family safe inside this giant cube boat. Thunder raging, earth covered in water, the planet submerged. It rains for seven days and seven nights. And then the storm dies down. So after the storm dies down, the righteous man opens a window. He checks the rain has stopped and he weeps with joy and sends out a bird to find dry land. First, he sends out a swallow and it comes back. Secondly, he sends out a dove and it comes back and then goes away again. Thirdly, he sends out a raven. It flies out, flies back and then flies out again and doesn't come back. The water resides and it leaves, the people leave the ark and create a sacrifice. In response for doing what the God asked, the righteous man is given two things. One is a promise that the God will never do that again and the second is that the righteous man will become immortal. Elements sound familiar. What we have just read isn't the story of Noah's Ark, but rather the story of the great deluge, the epic of Gilgamesh, written almost a thousand years before the Bible. So what we're encountering in our scripture reading this morning is God adapting a story that already existed. They say that the devil is in the detail, Well, this morning, it really is. Because what we need to see in the story as we encounter it in Genesis is what details have been changed in order to see what details God is bringing out. Remember when we looked at the story of David and Goliath, we saw that God was using an already existing form of literature or genre of literature in the ancient world, the contest of champions, and then developing it further. Well, it's the same in the story of Noah and the ark. What we see is God taking an already existing symbol, brand, or idea, and taking as much from that symbol, brand, or idea that is recognizable and tweak it just enough to subvert that very symbol. Noah and Noah's Ark, one of the most beloved stories of the Bible. Children play with their little animals and toy ark in Sunday school as the Sunday school teacher tells them how the animals march two by two into a pitch-covered vessel. Then the rain comes and we picture Noah and his family huddled in the tiny cramped ark, surrounded by elephants, walruses, and maybe even a couple of giraffes with their necks peeking out through the windows of the rickety boat. There are few biblical stories as well known as the story of Noah and Noah's ark. To the average person on the street, mention Noah and they'll probably be able to give you a very good overview of the story, complete with flood, animals, water, and rainbows. The ark and the story of Noah and the ark still captures our imagination. But the story of Noah and the ark is more than just a children's story, because in it we encounter something deeper going on beneath the surface. We read, the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart, and the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, and I will destroy every living thing All the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky. I'm sorry I ever made them. But Noah found favor with the Lord. Or as Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase would say, Noah was different. God liked what he saw in Noah. So in a world of corruption and chaos, what made Noah so different? Why did he, as opposed to anyone else in the land, find favor in God's eyes? Well, as we encounter the story in Genesis, we simply see that Noah believed. He believed that God actually meant what he said. He believed And he did all this in spite of the evidence and in spite of what people were saying around him. One of my favorite stories, or or novels even, is that great GCSE English literature set text may not still be on the syllabus to kill a mockingbird. And I suppose there's one line in that novel that has stood with me all these years. And it's that you really don't know what someone else's life is like until you've walked a mile in their shoes. So this morning, let us try and put ourselves in Noah's shoes. He lived in a world that is summarized in the message, as far as God was concerned, the earth had become a sewer. There was violence everywhere. God looked and saw how bad it was. Everyone corrupt and corrupting. Life itself corrupt to the core. But Noah. It wasn't easy for Noah to go against the grain, to make a decision to believe God when everyone else in the whole world seemed to have turned their backs. And to make matters worse, it's likely that the majority of Noah's neighbors probably thought that he was completely out of his mind, building a massive boat so far from any source of water is bad enough, but try building a massive boat somewhere that had never even encountered rain. Can you imagine the reaction of these people? Yeah, right, Noah, of course there's going to be a flood, but regardless, Noah believes and Noah builds. We read, Noah did everything that God commanded him. And just like in the story of the great deluge of Gilgamesh, what we discover is that God in this story, the living God, is very specific yet again about what the boat is to look like. Build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar inside and out. Then construct decks and stalls through its interior Make the boat 150 feet long, 70 feet wide, 45 feet high. Leave an 18-inch opening below the roof all the way around the boat. Put a door on the side and build three decks inside the boat, lower, middle and upper. Today, we are so familiar with the story of Noah and Noah's Ark that perhaps we miss the magnitude of what God is asking this man to build. This is a boat that is going to be four stories high and about the length of one and a half football fields. Massive. So the boat is built. And what can Noah and his family do but stand back and watch and trust and hope that now that they have gone out on a limb and actually built this boat, that God will actually send the flood? and the rain started. Maybe a couple of little drops at first, you know, that kind of misly rain that just gets in your way, and then maybe the rain slowly, gradually building in force and pounding the ground. And Noah, well, he's obeyed, him and his family in the boat. Splish, splash, splush, and the rain came down in torrents. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing that Sunday school song because my singing is that bad. And after the rain, after the 40 days and nights, what do we see? Well, we see Noah being blessed because he believed and built, and he is blessed by God. When it was all over, we read the rain stopped, the waters receded, and the ark ran aground. The Bible says, then God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, have many children, grow in number and fill the earth. But the interesting thing this morning is that if you go home and spend some time reading the story from chapter six through to chapter nine, there's actually no dialogue in the whole story. One Old Testament professor has said the only noise in the story between chapter 6 and 9 is the persistent falling of the rain. There is speech found in the text, but it's only before the waters come and after that they have disappeared. And all that is said in the story of Noah is actually put in the mouth of God. Noah and his family are silent throughout. God says a great deal to Noah before the flood begins, and to him and his sons after it is gone, but not once do we hear them respond. Silence, detail, but no dialogue. Description, but no conversation. Back on dry land, Noah builds an altar and sacrifices, yet this too is done in silence, without speech, without spoken word. In the story of Noah as we encounter it, there's wordlessness to be observed in the story. So what do we take from this story of Noah and the ark this morning? How do we even try to begin and apply the story of a man building a massive boat to our lives as we live them in the 21st century? But what we witness in the story is a man trying to follow God no matter how crazy it sounds. Build a massive boat in a barren land. You're right, God. You're pulling my leg. Do you know how ridiculous I'll look when I tell my families and my friends? It's all right for you, God, up there in heaven, but as for me, I'm the one that's going to have to listen to them. I'm the one that's going to have to look at them the people who once trusted me, now laughing in my face. But Noah just got on with the job. He built the ark, and not only did he build it, but he built it well. And once he got on the boat, once he gathered all the animals, once he gathered all the family members as God has commanded, what does he do? He just stays on the boat. In the story of the great deluge of Gilgamesh, we saw the the main character, the righteous man, gathering a crew to take on to the boat. Because if you're going to have a boat, a crew to steer it is probably a good place to start. But Noah and the ark, no crew. They just stay there. They decided that God was going to be the one who would send the boat in the right direction, not them for a moment. Let us leave the story of Noah and the ark and transport ourselves to the story of our lives. So maybe this morning you're sitting here and you have followed God into this kind of metaphorical boat of salvation because you've heard his voice, you've followed his leading, and you're trying to follow his ways of living on a daily basis. But the question is this morning, are you, am I doing and Noah? Are we just staying in the boat, following the flow of the direction that's coming from God, or on the other hand, are we desperately trying to clamber for a wheel and a rudder and to steer the course of the direction of the boat for ourselves? Noah just stays in the boat. And at the end of the day, all of us encounter floods as we try to live our lives. Every time things don't go the way we planned, flood. Every time we feel like we're being destroyed, flood. And what do we do in these moments? Do we try to navigate? The story as we find it this morning is not so much the story of Noah, but the story of an ark. In the midst of the incoming storm, it is God who initiates the way to remain safe. It is God who provides the idea and the design for the shelter. If you stay in the boat, as Noah experienced, you don't need to try and control it. Sounds easy. Of course, we all know this stuff. You know, I give my life to God, and he's the one steering me in the right direction. But then there's Monday Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, when we encounter life in some of its rawest forms, and suddenly we panic. Suddenly we pull back and think, yeah, that God thing did work that one time when I was going through this before, but you know what? This time I know the direction I should probably be going in, so I'll just get on With it. Because when the water is coming down, when we're in the middle of the flood, it's so easy to get distracted by the water that's all around us. We want to fix it and we want to sort it out and we want it sorted out now. But this morning, as we leave here, as we leave from these seats and head back out into the world, a world in which it feels we are often presented with many different kinds of floods, and maybe for some of us, endless floods. This morning, as we set out, are we going to set the distraction aside and just stay in the boat like Noah? Or are we going to try and steer God in the direction we want Him to take our lives in? This morning, God has a plan for each of us. This morning, God knows what he's doing. We've been singing and praying and reading the whole way through the service. God is in control. In the highs, in the lows, in the uncertainty, in the failures, in the moments when it just doesn't seem to make sense, God is in control. And if God can bring Noah and his family through a flood, God can bring you through the floods that you are encountering. Let us pray. Father, once again we encounter in Scripture the challenge it is to live faithfully for you in an ever-changing world. The reality of life outside the church door, whatever that may mean for each of us, whether it's in our jobs, in our families, in our homes, in our relationships. Father, as we wind down this summer, help us to stay in the boat with you, to seek the direction that you are moving us in, to accept that you have a plan for us, that you are steering us. Help us to surrender control to you, even when things get desperate, especially when things get desperate. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.